The Battle of Copenhagen, or more correctly, the First Battle of Copenhagen, was fought between Denmark and the British Royal Navy on the 2nd of April, 1801. Sandwiched between the battles of the Nile and Trafalgar, both of which I've talked about in the past, it was yet another emphatic victory by arguably Britain's greatest naval commander, Admiral Horatio Nelson, one which he himself declared the most terrible battle he'd fought in. At one point, Nelson was ordered to disengage, but famously put his telescope to his disabled eye and claimed he couldn't see the signal. And yet in one of those sliding door moments in history, the battle could have been avoided completely if only news had travelled faster. This is the story of the Battle of Copenhagen in 1801. On the 30th of March, 1801, the citizens in the Danish capital of Copenhagen stopped what they were doing and listened. Far, far away, they could hear the rumble of cannon fire. Elsewhere in Europe, this might have been a worrying sound, but not particularly unusual. For the previous decade, the French Revolutionary Wars had engulfed Europe. But for that decade, Denmark had managed to steer clear of the conflict. Not that she was an insignificant kingdom. It seems to be part of the Danish DNA as a nation to punch well above their weight. At the time, she was united with Norway, and her merchant fleets plied the world's oceans. Denmark had forts on the West African coast. Yes, Denmark was involved in the transatlantic slave trade. And she had colonies in the Caribbean the last of which she sold to the USA in 1917, now called the US Virgin Islands, as well as in India. Her navy, whilst not the most modern and well-equipped, was still sizeable. Indeed, over two dozen of the Danish fleet ships were assembled just off Copenhagen at this very moment. And that cannon fire, 25 miles to the northeast, was an ominous sign for the people of Copenhagen that their fleet would soon be in action against arguably the strongest navy in the world, Britain's Royal Navy. But Denmark wasn't technically at war with Great Britain, nor were they allied to Britain's enemy, France. So what on earth was going on? The French Revolutionary Wars and their successor, the Napoleonic Wars, were a confusing time in Europe. Alliances changed quickly. Today's enemy would be tomorrow's friend, and vice versa. For instance, Russia, who had been one of the leading adversaries against revolutionary France, and an ally with Britain, in fact, they'd landed a joint army in the Netherlands recently, had now withdrawn from the conflict. This left Great Britain and Austria as the two main powers still left in the war with the French. Unlike the Austrians, or the Russians for that matter, Britain's military might did not rest upon her army, but upon the Royal Navy, and she now used this naval strength to blockade the French and her allies. Part of that blockade policy was to board ships from neutral nations and impound cargoes they believed were destined for France. Not surprisingly, this didn't go down well with said neutral nations, one of which was now Russia. Their Tsar, Paul I, son of Catherine the Great, persuaded Prussia, Sweden and Denmark-Norway to join them in a league of armed neutrality. Whilst not siding with France, they would resist the Royal Navy boarding their vessels and would take action to support each other against Britain if necessary. The British saw this as a deliberate attempt to undermine their blockade of the French economy. Moreover, they also saw it as a potential first step to cutting off their own trade to the Baltic, a trade that included Scandinavian timber for their vessels. Consequently, in 1801, the British government sent a Royal Navy fleet to the Baltic under Admiral Hyde Parker in a show of force to make the League back down. However, if the show of force didn't work and real force was needed... Parker's second-in-command was just the man for the job. 
Vice Admiral Horatio Nelson. Nelson's star was already in the ascendancy, thanks to his victory at the Battle of the Nile, just over two years beforehand. Arriving off the northern tip of Denmark on the 19th of March, diplomats were put ashore and hurried to the Danish capital, Copenhagen. There they negotiated, unsuccessfully, with the Danish Crown Prince to leave the League. With no progress on the diplomatic front, Parker and Nelson held a council of war on the 23rd of March, 1801. Nelson, ever the man of action, was keen to enter the Baltic and sail straight towards the Russian fleet. Parker, a more cautious admiral, wanted to take action on the Danes, who were both on their doorstep and who had a much smaller navy than the Russians. In the end, the two admirals agreed to attack the Danish fleet. It was the 23rd of March. Remember that date for later. Despite not being his greatest fan, Parker agreed that Nelson should both plan and lead the attack on the Danish fleet moored offshore at Copenhagen. But before that, they needed to negotiate their way through the narrow strait separating Denmark from Sweden. As the Royal Navy sailed into this four-mile stretch of water, the guns of the Danish fort at Kronberg opened fire. It was this gunfire that the citizens of Copenhagen could hear on the 30th of March. Parker steered his ships in a single line close to the Swedish side of the channel and out of range of the Danish guns. Having navigated through the strait without any losses, Admiral Parker's fleet anchored about 15 miles from Copenhagen, whilst Nelson himself now approached the Danish capital in a small boat, a lugger named the Lark, on a reconnaissance mission. Nelson made several observations. Firstly, the Danish ships were moored side-on along the shore. In other words, they could offer broadsides to his fleet. Secondly, whilst many of them were not seaworthy, the very fact they were moored meant that this battle would be a pounding battle rather than a one of manoeuvre. Next, he observed that the Danish fleet benefited from an array of shore batteries behind them. Nelson estimated that the Danes could present a total of 380 guns to his 420. Finally, he observed that the only way to get close to the Danish ships was to enter a narrow channel called the King's Deep, with the Danish fleet on one side and a submerged bank, the middle ground shoal, on the other. It would require skilful work not to run aground, made all the more difficult as the Danes had removed all the navigation buoys in the channel. That night he dispatched Captain Thomas Hardy to chart the channel as best he could and to drop some replacement buoys. We've come across Captain Hardy in the Battle of the Nile and of course he would captain Nelson's flagship HMS Victory at the Battle of Trafalgar. In fact, he was the captain of Nelson's flagship here at Copenhagen, the 98-gun HMS St. George. However, with the shallow draft on the King's Deep Channel, Nelson now transferred his flag to the smaller 74-gun HMS Elephant. This too was captained by another veteran from the Battle of the Nile, Captain Thomas Foley. At that battle, Foley on HMS Goliath had skillfully taken his ship through the shallow waters around the French fleet, leading an attack on the unprepared landward-facing side of the enemy. He was one of Nelson's trusted group of commanders, whom he called his Band of Brothers, <laughs> nearly 200 years before Spielberg used the term. The plan, devised by Nelson, was that his squadron, comprising 12 ships of the line, plus five frigates, four sloops, and just over half a dozen bomb and fire ships, would enter the King's Deep from the south. The lead ship would anchor next to the first Danish ship and open fire. The second ship would then sail past, anchor next to the second Danish ship, and this leapfrogging tactic would follow all the way down the line. 
At the northern end of the channel, the frigate HMS Amazon would attack the Trekonda or Three Crowns fort. With its 68 guns, this would be too much for the Amazon alone. But as the water was deeper here, he would be joined by Admiral Parker on his flagship, HMS London, Hardy on HMS St George, and six more mighty ships of the line. On the morning of the 2nd of April, 1801, Nelson's squadron sailed down the seaward side of the shoal before preparing to make a tight U-turn to enter the King's Deep Channel. The first Royal Navy ship to turn into the channel was HMS Edgar, under Captain George Murray. The Edgar, like her 42-year-old captain from Chichester, had served at the Battle of Cape St Vincent. Murray made the turn perfectly and entered the channel, opening fire on the first Danish ship. However, the second ship in Nelson's line of attack, HMS Agamemnon, misjudged the turn and ran aground. The next, HMS Polyphemus, was more successful, entering the channel and firing on the 56-gun Provostine. Polyphemus would be present at Trafalgar four years later, and her captain today, John Lawford, would go on to become an admiral. Next came HMS Isis, and then HMS Glatton. The Glatton had originally been built for the East India Company. The Royal Navy had taken over this East India man in 1795. Here at Copenhagen, she was captained by William Bly. And if that name rings a bell, yes, this is Captain Bly of Mutiny on the Bounty fame. With HMS Ardent also successfully entering the channel, the narrow water was getting a bit tight, and the next two warships, HMS Bologna and HMS Russell, both ran aground on the middle shoal as they tried to overtake the ships in front of them. For the Bologna's captain, Thomas Thompson, this must have been a bit of a choker, seeing as he had fought with Nelson at Santa Cruz, where Nelson lost his right arm, and also at the Nile. Having said that, just because his ship was stranded didn't remove it from the action. He could still fire broadsides and the artillery batteries on the shore could still fire on him too. Thompson was to lose his leg in the battle. The other ships in Nelson's squadron also made it into the channel. Nelson's flagship, HMS Elephant, HMS Monarch, HMS Defiance and HMS Ganges under Captain Thomas Fremantle. For anyone with Royal Navy links thinking, I wonder if this HMS Ganges has anything to do with the training establishment? Well, the answer is no, that would be her successor. However, if you're looking for some sort of links to the present day, then Captain Fremantle's son, Admiral Sir Charles Fremantle, would give his name to the town of Fremantle in Western Australia. Anyway, back to the Battle of Copenhagen in 1801. I mentioned earlier that this was not going to be a battle of manoeuvre. By the very way the Danes had set their stall out, this was going to be a static, blasting battle of broadsides. The Danes had opened up at just gone 10am as Nelson's squadron sailed down the outside of the shoal. By 11.30, with all his ships inside the channel, the battle was fully engaged. The Royal Navy ships approached their Danish targets and dropped anchor when about 100 fathoms away. Now, if fathoms don't mean a lot to you, that's something less than 200 yards or metres. So, when I said it was a blasting match, just imagine the absolute bedlam and carnage being inflicted on both sides firing at that range. For two whole hours, the two sides pounded at each other. The Royal Navy crews were more experienced gunners than their Danish counterparts. But what the Danes lacked in skills, they made up for in determination. After all, they were fighting in front of their capital. Indeed, many of the population had taken every vantage point they could to watch the spectacle. Other citizens were not content to watch. Many ran to the shore batteries to offer assistance to defend the attack on their homeland. The smoke from this battle was incredible. HMS Isis was taking a pounding, as was HMS Monarch, whose captain, James Moss, was killed. 
It was now at about 1.30pm after two hours of fighting that probably the most famous moment happened in the battle. Parker, who was making slow progress towards the battle, thanks to a change in the wind, was concerned for his fleet. He could see three ships grounded, he could see a lot of smoke, but he really couldn't work out what was happening. Was Nelson winning or taking a hammering? The Royal Navy's Articles of War obliged officers to fight with all their abilities in a battle, i.e. no withdrawal, no surrender. So if Nelson was taking a hammering, he would do his duty even if all his ships went down. Parker decided to give Nelson the opportunity to withdraw within the Articles by signalling an order recalling Nelson's squadron. In other words, Nelson would only be disengaging because he was obeying an order from his superior. Parker confided to one of his officers that if Nelson was losing, he could retreat with honour. On the other hand, if Nelson was winning, Parker rightly guessed that his order to recall would just be ignored. Parker's signal was spotted and conveyed to Nelson. Nelson turned to his captain, Thomas Foley, and said, You know, Foley, I only have one eye. He'd lost his right eye back in 1794 at the Battle of Calvi on Napoleon's home island of Corsica. He continued, I have the right to be blind sometimes. And raising his telescope to his disabled right eye, uttered, I really do not see the signal. Nelson continued to fight on, and within half an hour, much of the Danish line had fallen silent. The Battle of Copenhagen had cost the Royal Navy about 250 men killed and 690 injured. Nelson wrote afterwards, I've been in 105 engagements, but that of today is the most terrible of them all. For a man who'd lost an arm and an eye in action, who'd been at the Nile and at Cape St. Vincent, that's a heck of a statement. The Danes had lost a lot more. Because of the nature of volunteers rushing to help out, the numbers have been hard to clearly ascertain, but somewhere around 2,000 dead, wounded and captured is a figure often quoted. Their navy had lost two ships sunk, one exploded and 12 captured. Of those 12, 11 were deemed so unseaworthy that the Royal Navy set them on fire rather than tow them across the North Sea. Only the Holstein was taken back to Britain. She entered the Royal Navy as HMS Nassau in 1805 and somewhat ironically served with the Royal Navy at the Second Battle of Copenhagen in 1807. The Battle of Copenhagen on the 2nd of April 1801 was a resounding British victory. But it was not seen as Parker's victory. Once more, it was seen as Nelson's. Nelson had planned and carried out the attack. He had been in the thick of it, and of course he'd ignored Parker's signal recalling him. The telescope to the disabled eye stunt just made Nelson even more of a fighting hero back in Britain. In fact, shortly afterwards Parker was recalled and Nelson placed in charge of the whole fleet. Being Nelson, he now prepared to sail east and take on the Russian navy. But at that moment, everything changed. One night in the Russian capital, St. Petersburg, Tsar Paul had been assassinated and his 23-year-old anti-French son, Alexander, came to power. And with that, the Russian position changed. They were no longer interested in being neutral in this conflict after all. Consequently, they withdrew their support for the League. And as they had been the prime mover in its establishment in the first place, everyone else was, well to use the nautical term, left adrift. The League ceased to exist, and Britain's embargo against France and her access to the Baltic was secure after all. But here is one of those sliding door moments in history that I love. Do you remember that back on the 23rd of March, Parker and Nelson had their council of war, where they decided to attack the Danish fleet at Copenhagen? Well, 
Guess what night Tsar Paul was assassinated? Yep, the 23rd of March. So if communications had been as fast as they are today, there'd have probably been no need to attack the Danes to make them withdraw from the League. For all that, the Battle of Copenhagen, 2nd of April 1801, was nevertheless an emphatic victory achieved by Nelson. He did what he was expected to do as a naval commander. It was just that the winds of diplomacy were blowing in a different direction. With the turn in diplomatic events, it was seen as a bit pointless and even slightly embarrassing despite its resounding military success. When Nelson returned to London, King George III elevated him to the rank of Viscount. But tellingly, not Viscount Nelson of Copenhagen, but Viscount Nelson of the Nile. A much cleaner and easier victory to explain all round. Well, I hope you enjoyed that story. And why not listen to another one now from my channel? And if you love my work, you can get even more exclusive episodes inside my supporters club. Click on the subscribe button to find out more and to join. My most recent exclusive was about William Manley, the only man to be awarded both the Victoria and the Iron Crosses. Anyway, thanks for your support. Keep well, and I'll speak to you very soon.